The reading is from Isaiah chapter 58, verses 1 to 12. Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out, they seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. This is the word of the Lord. (coughs) 
Shall we pray? Father, help us to hear what you are saying to each one of us individually and to respond in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't know how this mic is. Can you hear clearly at the back? Oh, David says yes. <laughs> That's all right. Ash Wednesday and Lent are an ideal time for reflection, to think about our relationship with God, where we stand before him. Are we growing? How are we getting on? It's a good time to put some things aside so we can spend more time in his presence. Now, in the Church of England, I've found we've gone between two extremes over the years. I remember back to my teenage years and the sort of prayers that we used to say in church at that time, concentrating on our wretchedness. I'm sure some of these phrases will be familiar to you. We acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness, provoking most justly thy wrath and indignation against us. The burden of them is intolerable. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father. And that wasn't just at Lent. That was regularly, every Sunday. So we used to go home with our heads down, sinners, in a terrible condition. Now I feel we've gone to the other extreme, and we hardly think about our sin at all. Well, why shouldn't Jesus die for us? We're not that bad. We have confession and the Sunday services, but often there are wonderful songs of praise before and after, and we hardly notice the words of the confession, unless I'm the only one like that. And so we go home thinking, well, I'm all right. But we should get a balance. Lent is a time of realizing our frailties, the things that are wrong in our lives, but also the enormity of God's love. Lent gives us that time for getting a balance. Now the people in the passage that's just been read had chosen to fast. This was their own idea to impress God. They had sackcloth and ashes, they humbled themselves, they kept their heads down. Surely God would be impressed. But he wasn't impressed at all. Because he saw their lives that didn't fit in with the things they were saying. He saw their sinful ways, their cruelty to the workers, their neglect of the poor, their holding on to slaves when they should have set them free. They weren't really fasting or seeking him at all. Everything was self-centered. So what is a true fast? What is real, sincere prayer? What does it mean to seek God? And what are the results? Because this is what we want to do during Lent, to really seek him. So what does it mean? What are the results? Well, the results of a true fast, I'm going to look briefly at three different things. First, we need to see the state of our hearts and to want to change. Secondly, we need a new realization of God's love for us. And thirdly, there's a change in our attitude to others. These things all come in the passage and they're all things that are results of truly seeking God. We see in verse 6 
that the first thing that happens if we are sincere is it puts here, loosen the bonds of wickedness. We have to see what's wrong in our lives and choose to put them right. Sin must be acknowledged and dealt with. We can't cover it over. We can't say it doesn't matter because it does. It's so much easier to declare God's love. But the prophets were told over and over again, declare to my people their transgressions. But notice, my people. When we go and speak to people outside who don't know Jesus, we tell them of God's love. We tell them they're invited. We draw them in. But once we know Jesus, then he gives us the power to change. So we don't tell the people outside to change, draw them in, then we need to change. When we belong to Jesus, sin must be dealt with. It may be habits that we can't break. And I've been told, I'm sure it's true, that in practically every church, there are things like pornography, even adulterous relationships, gambling, alcohol addiction, Even as Christians, we can still be tied up in these things and unable to break free. R.T. Kendall says that our natural impulse is to distance ourselves from God because of our guilt. But it's precisely because we feel guilty that we should approach him. And this is what he says, if you're struggling with an addiction, start getting as close as you can. To Jesus. That's the beginning of dealing with it. Don't keep away because of your guilt. Come close. Or maybe we have hidden sins that we're unaware of. Perhaps pride, arrogance, a gossiping tongue, critical spirit. I wonder how many of us love to say something bad about somebody else because it makes us feel better. These are all things that should be dealt with if we belong to Jesus. But we're not meant to keep looking inwards. I'm not for this looking to see the sin that's in us. I think we have to just spend time with God and the Holy Spirit brings these things to light. He shows us what's wrong in our lives. I love the verses at the end of Psalm 139 and often use these as a prayer. Search me, God. And know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. And when we pray this, he brings our sins to the surface. Whether they're things we knew about or things we weren't aware of. He can bring them to the surface and help us to change. And sometimes he shows us that actually our nature is corrupt through and through. I wonder if you've ever had a time when the Holy Spirit has shown you that. I'd been a Christian for years when I first saw that, and I thought I wasn't too bad. And I remember him showing me what my heart was like. And I cried out to him in despair. It's not just the things I do that are all wrong. It's me inside I wonder if he's shown you that as well. I saw the corruption of my nature. Everything I did was tainted by sin. 
But he does that not to make us despair, but to lead us closer to God for his help. I once read this sentence, and I'm sure it's true. Every step towards God is a step of thanksgiving. Even if we're aware of our sinfulness, our guilt, if we're feeling bad about ourselves, to come towards God is a step of thanksgiving. Now, there's a wonderful illustration in the Bible of how sinful people can approach a holy God. God has given us a pattern of how to do it. And it's in Exodus, in the tabernacle, repeated in the temple, and it still applies today. The way that we should approach a holy God, even though we're aware of our sinfulness. There's a chorus that I'm sure we all know that was written on Psalm 100, verse 4. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. Do you know it? I will enter his courts with praise. And the reason we can come with praise and thanksgiving is because the first object that we see in the tabernacle is the bronze altar, the place where a perfect lamb is sacrificed for sin. There's an answer for sin. There's a cure. That perfect lamb was pointing forward generations to Jesus on the cross. There's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin, as as the chorus says. He is our perfect sacrifice. So as we come with our sin, we come with thanksgiving because there's an answer. There's a cure. Jesus has died for our sin. <clears throat> Later on, we'll be using ashes. At least I think we will, John. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> As a sign of our mortality, our unworthiness, our tendency to sin, our, our wretched condition. That's what the ashes show us. But those ashes will be put on our forehead in the shape of a cross. And the cross signifies Jesus is the answer. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. He welcomes sinners. We're never meant to grovel in our sin, but to see what Jesus has saved us from and to rejoice. So the first sign of true fasting, sincerely seeking God, is beginning to see the state of our hearts and to want to change. The second sign of true fasting is seen in the way we respond to God's love. It's only when we've been broken by our sinfulness that we fully appreciate his love for us. I'm sure we all know the account in Luke 7 where a woman comes when Jesus is sitting at table with others and she comes behind him and she wets his feet with her tears and wipes them with her hair. She kisses his feet. She anoints them with perfume. And when people criticize, Jesus says this, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, but she loves much. He who is forgiven little, loves little. Now that doesn't mean we have to actually go out and commit lots of sin in order to love him, but we do need to see the sin in our hearts. We need to see that total depravity. And the more we see it, the more we love love him. 
I remember realizing when the Holy Spirit showed me the sin in my heart that I was capable of any sin imaginable. I used to say, well, I couldn't do that. But if circumstances were right, I could. There's not a single sin that I couldn't commit because that's in my heart. And that's what every human heart is like. But as I said before, we're not meant to wallow in guilt. I mean, that's what the devil wants. The devil wants us bowed down by our sin. That's no advert as a Christian. The key word for this time of year, in fact, for always, is gratitude. That's the word we need to hold on to. Once we've seen our sinfulness, we're overwhelmed with gratitude. One of Don Francisco's songs has this line in it. There's no sin you could imagine that is greater than my love. Just think about that. No sin you could imagine that's greater than my love. And someone else said this. I don't know who it was. Know yourself to be wicked and God will wrap you in the mantle of his goodness. The two go together. The more we see our sinfulness, the more we love him. Timothy Keller, whose book we've just been studying over the last few weeks, said this. God doesn't love us because we're beautiful. We're beautiful because he loves us. That's the way round. Some years ago, I was struggling with something wrong in my heart. And God was dealing with it. And I I felt utter despair. I felt awful. And at that time, we learned a new chorus, which meant a lot to me. Some of you may know it. And these are the words. Something beautiful, something good. All my confusion he understood. All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife. But he made something beautiful out of my life. When we come to him in our sin, we're not just forgiven, but transformed. What a saviour. And then we come to the third result of true fasting. This is found in verses 7 to 12 of Isaiah 58. It affects our attitude to others. If we're fasting, if we're praying, if we're seeking God, it must have an effect on our relationships. I wonder if any of you know the song, The Man from Galilee. It came out years and years ago, and a lot of people have recorded it. But I love this line from it. Take a look at yourself, and you will look at others differently. And that is so true. If we've seen our own sinful hearts, and have come to love Jesus and responded to his grace, it will show itself in our attitude to others. To be forgiven leads to wanting to forgive others. To be cleansed means we don't want others' sins to be exposed. We want them hidden from the world. We want to help people deal with them. The old known saying, there but for the grace of God go I. Once we've seen our sinful hearts, we can't pull others down because we're just as bad, if not worse, than they are. When we've been cleansed, restored, made new, we want to be channels of that amazing love to others. 
We want to meet others' needs and bring the love of God into their lives. This can only happen when we've seen our own wretchedness, the depth of our sinful hearts, and realized just what Jesus has rescued us from. So let's just sum up. We shouldn't leave here tonight with feelings of guilt. That's not what this service is all about. But of overwhelming gratitude. Not leaping on the mountain, singing and dancing and waving banners. That comes at the end of Lent. That's Easter Sunday. The attitude during Lent should be a deep, deep love for the one who's given his life to set us free. We need to get the balance The ashes, the symbol of our wretchedness, our mortality. We deserve to be cut off from God forever. That's what the ashes say to us. But they're in the shape of the cross. We are loved, valued, rescued, made clean. I want to close with just reading some words from two Christian songs written centuries apart, but they bring in this balance. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly, wash me, Saviour, or I die. Overwhelmed by love, deeper than oceans, high as the heavens, ever-living God, your love has rescued me. We need to see these two things together. And once we have, our lives will never be the same again. Amen.